This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time at Core Brain Journal. And we have a very interesting guest today, Sandra Alia, who's going to be visiting us from Toronto, Canada, and she has a, an amazing story that's really almost in the class of being ubiquitous because so many people have diet problems, weight problems, and she is recovering from morbid obesity, folks, and she's going to tell us how she did it. Sandra, thanks so much for coming on board. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. She's a great gal. And by the way, I'm looking at her here in the uh, visual of not Skype, but Zoom. And she looks great. I mean, you can't imagine that she had a problem, folks. So she's going to tell us how she did it in just a moment. Before we do that, let's talk about the fact that Core Brain Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders that provide improved, targeted mind science details. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond the commonplace guesswork. And they also provide multiple training webinars for both the public and medical providers on how to use that data effectively. So if the doctor can get it, he can use it. Check out their website for references and testing details. And take note of this. This is something they offer through Core Brain Journal. You can register for a complimentary test drawing at this site that I'm going to tell you in just a moment. And those tests range in price. Some of them are $190. Some of them are $200, $300. You want to go ahead and see what they have up for this week. And that's at greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal. Great Plains with an S, all one word, laboratory.com forward slash CBJ. So let me tell you a little bit about Sandra here, and then we'll go on. And I'm looking forward to talking to her. I know you are too. Sandra Aliyah has lived two lives, my friends. One as a morbidly obese woman with a food addiction that was uh, completely running her life. Since those difficult days long ago, she has transformed from being morbidly obese, lost over 100 pounds, and kept the weight off for more than 13 years, my friends. Sandra attributes her success to creating a program and a meal plan that is specifically designed for food addiction. And she's going to tell us all about it. She's made it her life's work to help others recover from addictive eating. So, as one of the world's first certified food addiction counselors, Sandra is a true pioneer in the field of recovery from compulsive overeating, addictive eating, and obesity management. Sandra runs Ontario's only eight-week outpatient food addiction recovery program, has co-created Canada's first 28-day residential treatment program, and runs retreats where clients can reclaim their health and lives in a variety of different ways, but certainly working on the eating disorder. Sandra strives to educate healthcare providers and offer appropriate assistance 
to those who suffer from addictive eating. She has a radio show, and a radio show, Your Daily Diet, a spiritual guide to a healthy body size. Sandra has helped create a community of seekers open to finding a solution beyond the traditional dieting model. It's aimed at healing the mind, the body, and the spirit altogether. She has been listening, I'm sure, to Core Brain Journal and certainly our frame of reference. We're singing from the same hymnal. The content of her show is solution-oriented, offering practical steps and tools, opening new ways of thinking and communicating about nutrition, healthy, and body image. I didn't even say that right, health and body image. I'm sitting here looking at the situation from the side. The show broadcasts do cover a base of residential audience of over 1.6 million. So she's very busy with that show. So let's go ahead and talk to Sandra. Sandra, let's tell us about, sorry about that shaky introduction. I no think worries. I can see the, it's very wordy. I need to on <laughs> the words. I tied it up a little bit, yeah. But I want to cover it because you have such great credentials, and I think it's great that you do the radio show. And, you know, you have that many people listening to it. I mean, it's a very, it's a pandemic. There's no question about it. So how did you find, I mean, obviously you've been working on the recovery, and obviously you were aware you had a problem. But how did you begin to structure your recovery so you could actually figure out how to do it? How did that take place? Yeah, so let me take you back to when I was uh, 29 years old, and that was 16 years ago. Ah, (laughs) time flies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, I wish I could tell you that morbid obesity was my only problem, but it wasn't. My whole life was spiraling out of control, and I was using food as my only coping mechanism, and over time it became like a drug, similar to alcoholics in the way that they use alcohol or drug addicts use drugs. And so I was in this bad marriage at the time, but you know, he had his bad behaviors and I could binge eat. So I thought it was a match made in heaven. (laughs) I was taking care of my mother. It was a very codependent relationship. She herself suffered from bipolar disorder and um, morbid obesity and codependency and addiction go hand in hand more than you can even imagine trying to have healthy boundaries with family, trying to be able to say no. It's something I really struggled with. And then I was off work. I had a complete mental breakdown and I was off work for three months. And the way that I um, came out of my addiction, the way that I crawled out of that rock bottom situation was actually with a 12-step program because that's all that was available 16 years ago. And part of the reason why I've created my programs today is to offer something for people who are resistant to 12-step programs. I will never say a bad word about the 12-step programs, but they were created in the 1930s by middle-aged or middle-class white men. And so it's from that frame of reference. And we just know so much more about the brain and science that we can apply. High five on that one. Yeah. Pardon me. I, I didn't mean to stop you. I think you're just on a great roll there. But that's um, I worked in addiction medicine. You don't know this, but I... I worked in addiction medicine many years, wrote a book called Deep Recovery, and I was actually addressing the whole issue of codependency as it related to the recovery process. All right, so so I'm preaching to the choir. We're we're talking the same language. Sorry to interrupt you. I got a little excited about that fact. Not at all. So how in the heck did you get into it, though? So you're Mm -hmm. still at such, there's so much denial tied up with all those shenanigans going on. How did you take it to the next step then? What happened? 
So what's really difficult for people who struggle with food addiction is the messaging out there is just find the right diet, find the right exercise regime, and you'll be fine. Just find it. But really, it's a billion-dollar industry. And the food industry is a billion-dollar industry. And so what I help my clients understand is what is food, so real food, singular ingredient food, and what has been chemically engineered, food-like substances that are created to be highly, highly addictive and treat those foods like alcohol, like drugs. These are foods that come with enormous price tags. The price tag is my health, my mobility, my relationships, my sanity. People, when you're in that food addiction frame, they talk about mind chatter, that constant, when am I going to have it? Where am I going to have it? Did I have too much? Did I have too little? Maybe I'll have some more dinner. Maybe I'll have some less. Maybe one cookie today. Maybe it'll be different. And it's constant. And all that mental real estate is gone. That mental real estate that you could use towards building a career, a family, a life. So I try to un- help people understand the price tag that comes along with these chemically engineered food-like substances. And what trips us up is we can observe other people having these foods with no consequences. Well, that, my friend, is what the alcoholic goes through as well. The alcoholic will watch someone enjoy a glass of wine and be done with it and wonder, why can't I? Why can't I learn to have a glass? Well, we've crossed over to this um, threshold of addiction where it lights up my reward center in a way that I just, I can't manage. And life is much more peaceful when I have abstinence from those drugs than trying to negotiate how much, when, and where. Then... You know, once I can put that drug down, well, lo and behold, I discover that the day I start using is the day that I stunt my emotional maturity. So for me, I started in my uh, early teens. So I'm quite lucky because I work with people who started as young as four or five. And so my, my maturity had been stunted while everybody else had opportunities. Life always presents you opportunities to grow, to develop a toolbox. My only tool, my only coping mechanism was food. So if I got a bad grade at school, no problem, go home and binge. I didn't learn to ask for help, how to figure out better better study habits. You know, if I had a fight with my partner, I didn't learn communication, ask for forgiveness, clean up. No, no, no. I just ate a pint of ice cream. So now I'm in my 30s, early, early 30s, and you've taken my comfort away and I have no life skills. It's enough to drive you back to your coping skill. So that's why my programs are incredibly holistic so that we, once we can get you, you know, my programs are built on three pillars. One, remove, eliminate your addictive substances. Once you do that, you need to create a support network. You need to be tapped into people doing exactly what you're doing every single day, especially with food. Food is the most available, socially acceptable drug out there. It's available 24-7 and they'll deliver it to your door. At least the liquor store, I don't know about in the U.S., but the liquor stores here in Canada have to close by 11 p.m. In Canada, you cannot get liquor unless you're in a bar after 11 p.m. And you have to show ID to buy liquor. But an Oreo is available to you 24-7. That is a very interesting doggone point. And I got to tell you right off the bat, we are very interested in the same thing. And from, you may not know this because we're just talking obviously about core brain and health and kind of general topics. But one of the things we found, which parallels what you're talking about, and I really want to ask you the question about the foods that are addictive. It's a natural question that would follow the observations that you're making. But we are very interested in testing for food sensitivities. 
because, you know, honestly, in this country, a lot of people think it's quackery for immunoglobulin G, for example. And the big three for me and my office are milk, eggs, and wheat. And so what happens is we find that people are absolutely tied up, and there's some opiate references, like, for example, milk, where you, in fact, are addicted to the milk on a neurophysiologic level. And so when we test it, then we can actually prove that that is a substance which really is not good for you on that level. So just I just thought I'd throw that out there for general interest. Sure. I didn't know if you knew about that. But how do you determine, getting back to the question for you, how do you determine when you're with your clients or in your own life what is addictive and why that particular food is taking you down the drain pipe? Yeah, so we keep it super simple. For people who enroll in my program, I do have a specific meal plan that I designed with the dietitian, a registered dietitian. However, it's very hard for me to know what your specific dietary and health needs are. So I keep it super simple. No sugar. Fruit is okay. No sugar. No flour products. And if you're late, what we would call late stage food addict, I would include grains. So those three things. And then your trigger- Grains. You, I just want to clarify real quickly. You said grains. All but grains. Not all, yeah, but not all food addicts. Only the more serious ones. Late People stage. who are morbidly obese, for example. Or a late stage food addict who really is, uh, once they start eating grains, they can't stop. So that's the hallmark. Once you start eating a food, you obsess about it, you want more of it, you try to figure out, it takes up so much mental real estate, but sugar for sure, um, flour products for sure. And then we have this other category called trigger foods. So trigger food could have no sugar, no flour, no grain, but once you start, my God, there is no stopping salty nuts. Once they open the bag, they're having two pounds of it and they're sick. Or cheese, so dairy, right? Cheese Mm -hmm. is another one. If I start the block, I'm eating the whole block. So it's not a safe food for me to have. So that's, you know, generally I just say it's sugar and flour. And then what are your trigger foods? That's interesting. And and they know that. When you come in, you you actually have them write down these answers, these questions. So you know exactly with each individual what their objectives are. So you can just remind them of their objectives. And the last thing I want to do is give them another diet. They're just done. I know for myself, I do not have another diet in me. And in fact, I say, if you want to gain weight, go on a diet. That's the surest way to gain weight. I can't count carbs. I can't count calories. I can't do it anymore. I did it for over a decade of my life and I don't have another one. So when I keep it as simple as no sugar and no flour, that means I can travel. I can eat out. I can do, I have so much flexibility because those two foods are eliminated and they're not part of my diet anymore. But I just want to circle back to the three pillars because I didn't finish. So removing your addictive foods, creating that support network. And the third and most important pillar, I think, is the mindfulness and the spirituality. So sometimes our greatest obstacle lies between our ears. It's our thinking patterns and the addiction loop. And if I've got a crazy making machine, and I do, (laughs) this can cause a lot of crazy, it's very hard for me to outthink my thinking with the same brain. And that's where I go inward for that spirituality and that mindfulness and tapping into that perfect place of peace, that place of power where there longs for nothing, there's no compulsion, really getting quiet and still to hear the intuition, that calm. So that's a way to kind of circumvent all the crazy addictive loops when it comes to food. Sandra, let's just take a moment to dig a little more into that because I think it's so uh, absolutely important 
because when you really think about it, there's everything you've said until you get down to the spirituality is a cognitive process of recognition. And that's that. Okay. I'm not going to do this. And I do need that. I need, I need the support. I don't need those particular foods. Then when you start talking about spirituality, you enter a whole nother realm. I think it's very hard for people to grasp. So if you could take a moment to just talk about techniques, kinds of things that you have seen people have difficulties with in practicing those techniques so that they can really get an idea of, hey, maybe I can do this. Let me try this. And then when do you use the technique? So there's the technique itself. How do they do it? And then how do they use it? So the reason spirituality is one of the pillars is because knowledge has never been the problem. I have yet to meet somebody who struggled with their weight and eating where it was knowledge. Oh, I didn't know fast food was bad for you. Oh, geez, I, okay, now the ice cream's going to stop. I had no idea I was supposed to exercise. <laughs> knowledge is not the problem. Nobody has the magic diet, right? So what is the problem? The problem is the how. How do I do this practically? So you mentioned some of the things, bringing mindfulness into eating. So I always say, before a meal, what is your intention? What is the intention of this meal? Because when we're looking to food to numb out, to relieve stress, to feel love, there's just not enough of it because that's not the intention of food. For tens of thousands of years, humans have been able to regulate their weight and their eating. Why? Well, first of all, it was a clean food supply. Second of all, the intention was to nourish, to have energy, right? And then the other thing is attention. Can your meal have your undivided attention? No screen time, no answering emails, no watching television. Like this is massive for people. And what they tell me when I run retreats and I make them eat breakfast in silence, they tell me it's painful. They're like, this is too pain. I don't want to be quiet with my food. And they'll tell me you ruined my breakfast because I can't eat as much. And I'm fully aware as I'm eating that sausage or that bacon and it's gross. And I'm like, well, isn't that interesting? They're having withdrawal right there in front of (laughs) So I, you know, to eat addictively means to eat mindlessly. It's the only way. And in fact, every addiction is like that. You go mindless to get drunk. You go mindless to get high. And you go mindless to eat addictively. And that was something that was offered to me when I was struggling with binge eating great person who said, don't worry about binge eating. Just the next time you're about to have a binge, shut everything off, be quiet and still and fully look at your food, smell your food, chew your food. Well, I couldn't binge. I couldn't. There was no way I could do. I needed to be mindless first. So that's really important. And then I ask people to spend some time. And at the beginning, it might only be five minutes of quiet meditation, getting in touch with our inner wisdom. You know, all of us are born with an intuition And I call this intuition the great equalizer. Whether you're educated or uneducated, young, old, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. We're all born with this incredible wisdom, that intuitive hit. When we don't listen to it, boy, oh boy, do we get in trouble. We've all been there, right? How do you get in touch to that place? How do you live from that place? How do you select food from that beautiful place? You know, it's interesting when you were saying it, I was thinking about that you were, as we started talking about spirituality and you think about spiritual practice, it's very easy to go over to religion. Oh, and yeah. So then maybe there is a specific thing, a specific prayer or a mantra or whatever, you know, something where you insert 
a structure into the process. The only structure, uh, structural piece that you're inserting is attention. You're saying, okay, I'm going to just be aware of what I'm doing and I'm going to cut out any stimulating side effect that would cause me to be distracted from getting this thing right that I need to do for myself. And then the strength would come from the core, from your inner being, and you're going to say, look, I'm just going to stay with this because this is why I'm being so careful about it. So I've got this other problem going on back here, and I'm trying to actually uh, you know, resurrect myself from the whole thing. Yeah, and it is absolutely separate from religion. I want to work with everybody. And so religion, of course, will exclude so many people according to your religion. And so it has nothing to do with that. And I look at spirituality as universal because I'm asking you, like you mentioned, going to your own inner strength, being in this present moment and being fully aware and maybe living in a place of gratitude and abundance. So one ritual that I ask my clients to do before every meal, and I do it too, is I create my plate of food, I look down at it, and I eat it with my eyes first. So I give my brain a chance to understand what I'm about to do, and that I have this bountiful, abundant amount of beautiful food, and the colors, and the aromas, and then I can eat. And it's interesting to see that you become satiated. Well, I can just, just listening to you, I can imagine slowing down. I, I don't do that myself. I was listening to you carefully and thinking, Hey, because you, it really changes your consciousness about what you're about to do. And you said it a moment ago, intentionality is there. You have Mm -hmm. a much improved intentionality because you're connecting with every substance there on your plate and you're having a relationship with that particular sub. Wouldn't that be great if we did that in our human relationships as well? Right? Uh, <laughs> side topic. I won't get into it. But, you know, that's, that's very interesting. So, yeah, in fact, what you were doing was answering the next question that I was looking at. So what do you do if a person does have a problem and they're struggling with that intentionality, with that staying focused? What kind of, do uh, you have any tricks up your sleeve to get, help that person stay on the path? Yes. And I, you know, part of my eight week program, one week, the homework is to have two meals in complete silence and it be mindful. And yes, people come back and say, I I can't, there's no way I tried. What I offer to them is maybe just a snack, or maybe it's just an apple, or maybe it's half of a snack. What can you do? It's a muscle that has no strength right now. And you have no practice at it. So I just want you to set yourself up to be successful. This is huge, especially for people who have struggled with their weight and eating for the majority of their lives. And they feel like they failed and they failed and they failed. And they almost adapted into their identity. I must be a failure. And I'm like, no. So now we're going to set yourself up to always succeed. What can you succeed at? Half an apple? Great. And then celebrate that you ate that half an apple mindfully. And I just want to say something about that sense of failure that we sometimes will put into our identity because we fail at weight loss. Mm-hmm. If you're a food addict, a diet will never help you. A diet will keep you stuck in addiction because it talks about moderation. It talks about having just a little bit of your drug every single day or just make sure that your drug is within calorie count or point system, which will constantly reignite craving. And then the cravings, you know, you have to white knuckle and it's just not a great way to live. 
So understand that your treatment plan has failed you, you, not the other way around. And when you adopt a food addiction model, you'll be on the right treatment plan. And you'll see that, that you'll, that's the only way that I've been able to keep this weight off for 14 years now. And it's because I treat food as real food and the other stuff as a drug. It's and a poison. It's a poison in my system, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, we talked about how only 3% of the population is able to lose 50 pounds and keep it up for five years. And you know what? If doctors had that kind of success rate with any other treatment, it would be scrapped. But because it's obesity and there's so much bias, they just figured the patient's fault. Yeah, and it isn't the patient's fault. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, not at all. On that comment, but I... What seems to be going on there is that we haven't really fully appreciated the point that you're making in that the whole sense of uh, consciousness needs to be changed from moderation to a much more fundamental, this is good, this is bad. We have to have a clear sense of this is counterproductive for my development as a human being as opposed to a little bit is not a problem. I can just keep the gates open because, and what we're doing is respecting each person's biochemical individuality because that person has a certain physical relationship with that product. And by taking a moment to catch your breath there with that, you're saying, I'm going to have a physical relationship with what I'm about to eat. And this one's not going to take me away. And I'm going to be conscious about if I'm going to go over here, I'm going to go down the drain pipe. I'm going to have a problem. It's going to take me a while. And do I want to throw all the good progress I've made for that little whatever, where it's over there calling my name and throw myself down the tubes? And I work, I'm very fortunate that I found some doctors in Ontario who believe in food addiction and this treatment plan. But let me tell you, a good majority do not. They think that you can't eliminate entire food groups. And I always say to them, you're right, but I'm not talking about food. See, we've all been, you know, we believe that it's food. And it's interesting that if somebody has a peanut allergy, we don't say to them, listen, just learn to have this. We understand you go into anaphylactic shock and have this unnatural response, but we want you to still have some peanuts. So when I have a cupcake, I go into shock and I have an unnatural response, which is called binging. And I can't stop eating. And then the remorse and guilt that I feel afterwards happen not once happened thousands of times over maybe a 15, 17 year period. So how much more proof do I need that a cupcake is like a peanut to someone who's anaphylactic, right? Well, you know, the thing I'm getting excited about what you're talking about, because I'm thinking about, I do this all day, every day. I mean, I'm trying to help a person stay on a diet, but I wasn't really quite conscious of these pieces that we're talking about. And I'm really thinking about how many I'm going to refer over to this recording that we have because you're saying so much of what actually goes on and you're an expert in the field. And what we see with the addiction with so many is if they have an allergy to the food, that is a food sensitivity, is a nuanced allergy, but it's still an allergy by any other name because they are actually having a negative effect with it that causes an inflammatory process. So you can call it an allergy, you can call it a sensitivity. The problem is it's harming their physical being and downstream it harms their brain being because no matter what we do you can throw meds at them you can have them stand on their head it doesn't matter what kind of tricks you're going to do if the body is inflamed 
and running around with cytokines all over in the brain, blocking the neurotransmitter receptor sites, the person is frozen in time. And so this is really helpful because I hadn't really thought about that part of it as, as the way that you were just describing. And we're going to send people back to, to listen to this. I'm going to take a break here and I'm going to ask you a question when we get back. I'm going to ask you now and then I'm going to ask you when we get back. This is going to be a little bit of a hard question probably. I don't know you well enough to know, anticipate what your response is going to be. I'm sure you have a good response because you're very experienced with these matters. But one of the things we see and we see happen so often, I'm putting my psychiatric hat on for a moment, okay, is how do medications fit into this or how do people using various uh, medications to, in a way, forestall their appetite, how do either, there's two questions really, the psychiatric medications fit into the recovery from your opinion and how do these food stabilizing, appetite stabilizing medications fit in with your program? Those are two questions we're going to ask. We very easily talk about the whole rest of the time. So folks, we'll be back in just a moment. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot, they get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash cbj. Yeah, that's Core Brain Journal CBJ. Well, folks, we're back now, and this is Sandra Alia from Toronto, Canada, and she's giving us a very articulate look at what food and mind and body, how they're all intertwined in counterproductive ways and how you can actually straighten that whole situation out. So the two questions were, I think the easy first one is probably what psych medicines do. And then the follow-up question behind that is, what is your opinion as a recovering person and leading recovery activities with those appetite suppressant medications? So let's just take them one at a time and see what you think. Sure. Yeah, so if I, I can start with appetite su- uh, suppressant. So okay. we have um, here in Canada, it might be a little bit different, uh, the landscape. We only actually have three drugs that are approved in Canada for weight loss. One of them doesn't work at all, so we won't talk about it, Xanacal, but there's Sisenda. So Sisenda is a daily injectable that will help mitigate appetite. 
So whether it is a drug or bariatric surgery, there is no silver bullet. I'm not against pharmacological therapy. I'm not against gastric bypass surgery at all. As long as patients understand that it is not the silver bullet, that it will not be the, end, the cure-all of everything, especially if you identify with addictive eating. So you still need to do the work, which involves identifying those trigger foods and eliminating it, figuring out why food is a coping mechanism, start to build your toolkit, clean up relationships, you know, develop a spiritual life. That all has to happen in conjunction with bariatric surgery and an appetite suppressant like Sysenda. There's also a new, this is a new drug to Canada, but I think it's been out in the U.S. for a while, Contrave. So Contrave is very interesting in that it looks at the reward center and food cravings because for most food addicts, they're not eating because they're hungry. I was never hungry. It wasn't because my appetite, oh my gosh, if I could just control my appetite. Because guess what? I ate past binge. I ate past full every single day. So being full was not the problem. So Contrave I find very interesting and in that they do help you with food cravings. I see it as a little step up. So for example, if someone's suffering from depression, you should be on an antidepressant. But is the antidepressant the silver bullet? Probably not. You probably still have to put in a regime of fresh air and nature and movement in your body and community and that whole recipe for having a good life because those people recover from depression much better than just taking medicine. So I always look at it as, what do you need to give yourself a little step up, maybe a little help to get through withdrawal if you're giving up sugar and flour, and maybe Contrave can help you with that, but still incorporating whatever you do into a holistic program. Good. So it's, it's useful, but it's not the be-all, and it's not 100%. People just want to rely. What you just said is, folks, you have to do the work. <laughs> exactly. And some of my most heartbreaking clients are bariatric uh, patients. So they've had gastric bypass, which is a very, as you know, an operation that alters your entire life. And they get a two-year reprieve where they have absolutely no appetite. And what they sometimes do is they just have less of their drug. And they just they keep the addiction going at a very low level. And then after two years, that reprieve is over and they see weight gain and weight gain and weight gain. And they feel such shame. Because their families, you know, said, wow, we saw you through that major surgery. You, you know, now look at you, the weight's back and your stomach is the size of a shot glass. How did you do this? Right. Those, those so true. So true. Excellent. 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 I mean, this is such a useful interview. I mean, it's great. You're just really very interesting. So then let's talk about the psych meds themselves. That's a little deeper, but take a shot at it and see us, what your opinion, impression is of individuals who are taking uh, specific uh, psych medications? So I don't always know which of my clients are taking psych medicine because I don't mm -hmm. have access to their medical folders. But I would imagine it's very similar to something, you know, like a step up, helping you get into a good mental headspace where you're not fighting your thoughts or fighting this overwhelming depression that may not allow you to do all the other things, meal prep, exercise, all of that. So I attend to, to that, just having, getting in a good mental space if you need it and incorporating all the other lifestyle changes. Well, there's some meds that actually do stimulate appetite because, and this is getting a little deep from what we're talking about, but we see it happen with patients. I'll just bring it in to our audience. And that is the serotonin product. There's an important balance between serotonin and dopamine in the brain. 
Yes. And it has to do with the enzyme systems that are related to each one of them. And we have some PDF downloads on the site. But the bottom line is, if a person just does serotonin, like a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, it doesn't matter what it happens to be. It can be Zoloft, Selexa. I don't know what the names are up there, but Effexor and um, like Lexapro. Those are all serotonin products. Well, they can downregulate the dopamine, which gives you a less, a diminished, if I can spit it out, a diminished executive function, which then puts you a little more on the, hey, I can do whatever I want to. It's not a problem. So then they get a little bit metaphorically unzipped in terms of their program because they're actually relying on the serotonin product to actually feel better, but it has the counterproductive effect of disinhibiting them. So when they get disinhibited, then they go down the tube with eating. And a lot of people gain weight on the antidepressants where it has one effect in a positive way and negative on the the dopamine side. It actually makes a person with executive function problems uh, regress even more. Wow. That's good to know. I mean, just to pick up on dopamine and serotonin, um, most drugs affect you on the dopamine level. We all know this. But interestingly, food and alcohol will increase dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins in our brain. All three get raised by having it. And so that's the other part of withdrawal. If you're getting a regular hit of serotonin from large volumes of carb, or you're getting regular hits of dopamine from chocolate and sugar, and then you don't get that anymore. Right. So a lot of people will say to me, yeah, I mean, I've eliminated sugar and flour and my appetite's corrected, but I don't get a buzz from eating anymore. There's no buzz. My brain is looking for a high. That's also very difficult to deal with. Over time, you will learn to get dopamine, serotonin, and endorphins from life. You will, but they won't be as immediate or intense at the beginning. So I get a great hit of endorphins from going for a job. It's wonderful. I get a beautiful high. But when I left food, that jog didn't feel as good, right? Like a giant pizza did it a lot quicker. quicker oh, yeah, and more yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and some people can't do that jog and they can just go out and take That's a long right. walk. I mean, I, yeah. what I've seen a lot of times, apropos, you've made this reference uh, several times on, on this brief conversation, but getting hooked up with nature, just yeah. being, get those tennis shoes on, yeah. and get out and do the walk. And just be out there for a period of time. So people get flummoxed by the idea, hey, you know, I really need to run 10 miles. No, I can't do that. Maybe I need to run a mile. No, I can't run a mile. Well, then just say you're going to go out for a walk for half an hour. You know, get that. But don't go out for a walk for 15 minutes. Go out for a walk for half an hour. And then relax with that whole thing and get yourself on a, I'm taking care of myself. I'm getting my internal system Corrected and putting myself more on track. And my endorphins yeah. is the word I was looking for there. So. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And that's where it started with me. I mean, I was just so embarrassed at 29 years old. All I could do was walk for 15 minutes. That was it. But I did it. I just let go of that. You know, I just became humble and realizing, yeah, I'm going to try something and I'm going to suck at it and I'm not going to be good. But every day I get a little bit better. And that 15 minute walk turned into a 30 minute walk. And then one day that walk wasn't enough and I was jogging. <laughs> like I surprised myself. And then I went from 5K to 10K to a half marathon. That didn't happen in a year. That mm-hmm. probably happened in 10 years. But gosh, it feels so good when you let go of that perfectionism and that wanting to be at a level that you're just not and enjoying where you are. 
Sandra, this is such an interesting conversation. Let's really take a moment to to ask you a couple more important questions in terms of follow-up. So do you do virtual consults anywhere? Do you do them on the phone then? Yes. So my eight-week program, I do them in medical clinics, but I also do a virtual Zoom one that's starting in late September. So that's a possibility. I work with people one-on-one over Zoom or phone, whatever their preference is. I also do retreats. So if people want to travel to beautiful Ontario, Northern Ontario, spend a weekend with me and what I would call is a more intense experience to really get you set on the right track, eat our meals together, understand what a day in the life looks like. There's that option as well. So that's great. So then they can contact you. How this is that we're closing down here. Yes. Uh, so let's talk. And I think it's really important for you to spell your website and sure. it will be in the show notes folks. So don't worry about it if you didn't catch it here, yeah. but let's go ahead and close with Sandra telling us uh, exactly where we can reach her. Of course, my website, which is my name, Sandra Alia, S-A-N-D-R-A-E-L-I-A.com. So it's very easy. You can find a contact me page there and send me an email and I can send you right now. I have six different programs on the go so we can find something that will work for you or we can put an individual package together, which sometimes people really like because we can hone in on their specific needs, their specific challenges, and come up with strategies tailored to their life. So well said. So mm-hmm. interesting. What a delightful conversation. We're going to wind Pleasure. up here, but I really appreciate you coming on board. And if you have other wrinkles that you'd like to come on with some later time, we'd be happy to have you on again. You're so articulate and so interesting. Oh, thank and you. I just really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you so much. So Take you care. have. We appreciate it. So we'll wind up now and we will talk soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.